Hello, and welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. I'm your host, Ming Kennedy. Trips and Global on Wheels is focused on sharing resources and insights into disability advocacy, fitness and health, and accessible travel. Our mission is to build a community of healthy, worldly, and informed advocates. Each week on our podcast, we interview someone with a disability or someone whose work advances the disability rights movement locally and internationally. This week, I spoke with disability rights advocate Shanta Rao Bariga about her experience of founding the very first division focused on disability rights at the Human Rights Watch and her over decade of experience advocating for the basic rights and documenting the crimes against individuals with disabilities all around the world. Shanta shared with us the tragedies and the progress of her work. And now, let's listen in on that conversation with Shanta. Shanta Rao Bariga, thank you so much for coming on the Trips and Global Podcast Hour this morning. So delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So for our listeners who are not as familiar with Shanta, let me give you a bit of a background. Shanta Rao Bariga is the founding director of the Disability Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. She leads research and advocacy on human rights abuses against persons with disabilities worldwide. Shanta is a founding member of the International Network of Women with Disabilities, member of the Amnesty International Advisory Group on Disability Rights, expert to the Catalyst for Inclusive Education Initiative and a senior advisor to the Global Campaign for Mental Health. She also served on the UNICEF Advisory Board for the 2013 State of the World's Children Report. Before joining the Human Rights Watch, Shanta participated in the UN negotiations towards the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, working as part of a global coalition to advocate for strong protections on non-discrimination, accessibility, education, legal capacity, independent living, and international monitoring. So, to kick off our interview... My first question is, why do you believe in people with disabilities so much that you've devoted over a decade of your professional life to this? So, so thank you for asking that. It's a really good question. And it's one that I've thought about a lot. As you said, I've been working on disability rights for over a decade now. And in the hundreds of interviews I've done in different countries all around the world, the one constant refrain haunting refrain that people have said to me again and again is I'm treated less than human. And when you see someone locked up and isolated in an institution simply because they have Down syndrome, or when you meet someone who is shackled, held by chains to a tree simply because they have a mental health condition, or you meet a child who is denied the chance to go to school with his friends because he uses a wheelchair, it becomes your issue too. And it is something that you cannot just close your eyes and and look away. I really feel like people with disabilities are one of the most at-risk groups. They're one of the most invisible groups in our society. And yet, I've also met amazing people with disabilities who are some of the strongest advocates for their own rights and the rights of all other people with disabilities who have taught me a lot and inspired me to stay in this work for as long as I have. But I think it's hard uh, not to be an advocate for people with disabilities 
when you've seen and heard so much of the abuses that they endure. And it's very difficult, dense work. So I think I think it's really admirable that you've stuck with it for such a long time. I understand that you're the first person to bring the idea of disability rights to the field of human rights. Um, explain to us why it's so significant and necessary to bring disability rights to the field of human rights. Well, I can't claim to be the, the first. I, I mean, I think there are a number of people who raise this issue, but definitely we're Human Rights Watch is the only mainstream human rights organization that has a dedicated team focusing on people with disabilities and the abuses they experience. I came on board nearly nine years ago after I and many others in the field were lobbying Human Rights Watch and encouraging them to engage on human rights, recognizing that disability rights are human rights. It's been so exciting to be a part of this process, to see it grow from just a single researcher, myself, to now we're a team of nine, including a number of people with disabilities or people who have close family with disabilities. And just to see how the organization has embraced the issue, has seen how it's strategic and important to work on, and how it's been integrated into so many aspects of our work, both the research that we do and the advocacy that we do, down to having Braille cards, you know, our business cards in Braille, and our office is accessible, and our reports available in easy-to-read formats. So I think there's just it's been really interesting and, and, and exciting to be part of this journey and now to also see organizations like Amnesty International begin to uh, explore how they can also uh, work more on on disability rights as as a dedicated area and hopefully there'll be more mainstream human rights organizations that follow suit. What impacts have you made towards the disabled community either domestically or internationally that you are most proud of during your time at the Human Rights Watch? Well, it's been really amazing to see impact we've had in so many different countries. One of the projects that I was personally involved in is work on shackling and other abuses against people with psychosocial disabilities or mental health conditions in Ghana. And there we've seen one camp end the use of shackling where, you know, one spiritual healing center that had held um, more than a dozen people in chains, some of whom were there for uh, nearly a decade. And just about a year ago, they also announced a national ban on shackling, which was the result of our pressure together with local disability rights advocates. And that's just in Ghana. And in Indonesia, where we've also undertaken work on this same issue of, of chaining or shackling people with psychosocial disabilities and abuses in psychiatric hospitals, we've seen real impact in the way the Indonesian government has moved forward on including mental health care in its primary health care, training health care workers across the country. 25,000 health workers have been trained. It's been a really important effort within the government to ensure that people have access to mental health care or psychosocial support. And that's just one aspect of the work. We've also done work on access to education and seen some real progress forward in a number of countries where schools have begun to include, or donors, uh, even more importantly, perhaps, begun to make sure that their funding does not discriminate against children with disabilities in schools. We've Mm -hmm. done work on people with disabilities in humanitarian crises and seen that there's been a growing attention to this group as an at-risk group when it comes to conflict and crises around the world. 
And then the final area that we've done a lot of work on is on deinstitutionalization, where we're beginning to see more and more governments develop for uh, plans to move people out of institutions and into communities with the support that they need. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's so crucial to tell these stories. They are really hard to read and they are really hard to research, but... I think especially a lot of us living in the U.S., both with and without disabilities, we don't realize how far behind third world or developing countries are in terms of disability rights and, um, and how important it is to continue the work both domestically and internationally. So how has disability rights work changed how you view or treat individuals with disabilities? Compare from before you started this work and how the disability rights advocacy work has changed you over the last decade. Well, I think at the start of my engagement in this field, there was a lot of effort to persuade governments to honor the principle of nothing about us without us and persuade all the various stakeholders that you know, having people with disabilities at the table was really important, having them be part of the advocacy, having their voices heard. And I think in, in a number of ways, that is now a given. And I think that's amazing to see people with disabilities do have a voice much more than they did before. And they do have a seat at the table, which I think is really important. So going back to the question I asked earlier about bringing the idea of disability rights to the field of human rights. So it seems so obvious now that disability rights are human rights, um, just like women's rights or black people's rights. So in that it should deserve just as much attention and focus. Why do you think the Human Rights Watch did not have a disability rights division up until about a decade ago? Well, I think the convention was a real catalyst for a number of organizations to take note that people with disabilities were victims of such abuse. I mean, the other human rights treaties that uh, were adopted before, let's say, the Convention on the Rights of Children, or the Convention on the Discrimination Against Women, of course, those applied to women with disabilities and children with disabilities. International human rights laws on civil political rights and on economic and social cultural rights, they applied to people with disabilities. But it was only in, in about the year 2000 that the UN acknowledged that despite having these broad international human rights laws, people with disabilities were still not, their rights were still not protected. And so that there was a need for uh, a separate convention. And I think the adoption of the treaty, which was in 2006, was the catalyst for a lot of of the movement that you're seeing now in terms of more visibility in the human rights movement and more engagement of governments on supporting people with disabilities and empowering people with disabilities. I think the treaty has helped spark a lot of the change that we've seen. You've done a lot of research on the treatment of people with disabilities all around the world. Which country do you feel like need the most improvement and why? Well, that's always a really tough question to answer because I think that in any country you go to, you can find abuses against people with disabilities. Rich or poor countries, north or south, east or west, you will find that people with disabilities are among those whose rights are abused most regularly. So I, I, I can never answer that question, definitive country that's the worst or the best, because I don't think that there exists such a thing. But I think it's uh, important that in every country that the rights of people with disabilities need to be respected. And it's uh, even more important that we acknowledge that people with disabilities are people, first and foremost. And therefore, we need to look at it from that perspective in, in every country. 
And perhaps you'll find my next question just as hard to answer.、Um, but what country has the best model in terms of the treatment of individuals with disabilities? Not only having policies, because we see countries like China, for instance, just because I've done some research there, they have great policies on the treatment of persons with disabilities, but it's not implemented. And so that is not useful and doesn't help the disabled population there. I mean, I think that's the thing. There are some countries that have great policies, but they don't implement. I think other countries may be doing important things, but the laws are not necessarily、uh, in line with the UN treaty. I think it, it depends on the issue. So, for example, I think there's some countries like Spain that are quite good on terms of physical accessibility. You can even go up to some historic buildings, and they've made them accessible. Transportation is accessible, and so on. There's just a lot of improvements in in, in some, even within a country. You'd even have some cities that are particularly good models of accessibility. I think there are pockets of good practice in in many different countries. Even in Nepal, where we did research several years ago, there was an example of how schools did integrate children with disabilities,、uh, despite the fact that Nepal is a relatively poor country and、uh, has a number of, had a number of challenges over the last decade. There were projects that were supported by UNICEF that showed examples of how inclusive education actually works, and we've seen examples also in Europe of how the process of deinstitutionalization can work. In Croatia, for example, we documented how people with disabilities who were moved out of one institution were thriving at home,、uh, in their own homes, and doing really, you know, as long as they had the support that they needed, they people were able to live on their own, which I think helped change the minds of those who thought that that something like independent living was、uh, was not realistic. So I think that you're right; the good practices are really important to, to highlight, and I think. Countries have good practices on different issues, and it's a matter of putting out more information on some of those good practices that may be appropriate to adapt in other cultures and countries.、Mm-hmm. So we were talking about the best practices. I think I was really surprised by the accessibility of Dubai, their mass transportation system. Um, even though I know prior to going that it's a wealthy country, but I didn't expect it to be so accessible. So, of all your research you've done over the last decade or so, what do you think individuals with disabilities need the most in third world and developing countries? When it comes to the daily lives of people with disabilities, I mean, it comes down to even the basics: access to school, which affects so many other rights. Uh, access to healthcare on the basis of informed consent, which also has such implications. And I think at the core of that is the right to legal capacity, which is the right to make decisions on your own and have the support in decision making. And I think when people with disabilities lose their right to legal capacity or are deprived of it or it's denied even partially, is when It has an impact on so many other aspects of their life. If you cannot make a decision on your own or be allowed to decide your own future, so I was asking that question in light of what is different compared to the global north and the global south. How is what individuals with disabilities in the global north need different from things that people need in the global south? How do they differ? Well, I think it's hard to say because I mean, we just released a report this last week on access to education for kids with disabilities in schools in Brussels, in 
people that are run by the European Union. And even there you have children with disabilities who are denied the chance to go to school with their peers. They're not given the support that they need. Of course, the scale is probably much less. There are many more children with disabilities likely in school in Europe than in places in the South, the global South. Um, but so many of the issues are the same, and the scale just might be different, and the resources are, of course, quite different. Uh, but it comes down to, at the end of the day, the political will and the importance of treating every single person just like anyone else and making sure that they have their rights. So we've heard about uh, people with disabilities being hidden away, being locked up, being blamed for their disabilities from you know either evils that they've done in, in the previous life or whatnot. These kinds of negative attitudes have existed for a very long time, for decades. What progress has been made to improve this mindset? I think having people with disabilities in leadership positions really does begin to shift the thinking. People with disabilities are more empowered the more that they're educated, the more that they're in senior positions in government, in the private sector, in the entertainment industry. And I think that's shifted to some degree, although there still is a lot, a lot to go. Along the same line as that previous question, how is the communication barriers, environmental barriers, attitudinal barriers changed? But also, how can we speed up this progress? You know, of all the rights-based organizations, the disability rights movement has progressed very slowly, both domestically and I would say even more so internationally. From your experience of working in the field, what can we do to speed up the progress? I actually feel like there's a lot of progress that's been made both nationally and internationally in terms of organizations of people with disabilities having more of a voice. However, I think that a strong link is investment in people with disabilities. So in the countries where there are more donors that are granting people with disabilities and their organizations grants to build their capacity and to engage in advocacy with the government or at the international level, we've seen a lot of progress in those countries where there, or in those contexts where there hasn't been enough investment in the capacity and building the capacity of people with disabilities, that's where I think we've seen not as much progress as, as we'd hope. It's also a matter of the governments in place. I think there's been a real challenge to the human rights agenda over the last several years with more authoritarian governments taking hold in key countries. And I think that has a chilling effect on all civil society, including people with disabilities and the organizations they represent. That's a very good point. So it's obviously really important to document these crimes uh, against individuals with disabilities. So over the years, as you're collaborating with the governments and multinational companies, perhaps, what direct efforts and progress have you seen that gives you hope for the future? I think there's a lot of hope for the future. The more that I meet people with disabilities who are leaders of organizations really paving the way for their rights, I think there's a lot of hope. Uh, I think we've begun to see real shifts in governments, not only changing their laws, but changing their practices on the ground. Despite the fact that a lot of my work and our work as Human Rights Watch is to document the abuses, we've also been able to document some good practices and some cases of people who have overcome the barriers and really triumphed. People with disabilities who used to live in institutions who are now living alone, on their own, in the community. People with mental health conditions who are 
who've been released from psychiatric hospitals and are now given back their dignity and their liberty. Kids with disabilities who have fought along with their families to get a place in that mainstream school and are thriving. And so these are the stories that give me a lot of hope. You know, we're a little over a decade into the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities being uh, adopted, and in just over 10 years, there's actually a lot of progress if you step back and you look at how the situation was for people with disabilities in many countries around the world. So I, I have a lot of hope, and I think there's a lot more changes that will happen in the next decade. How have you encouraged individuals with disabilities to speak up for themselves? So I know when I was interning for your office, the Disability Rights Division was very small, and I don't know if it's expanded over the last few years. How have you encouraged individuals with disabilities to join Human Rights Watch and to advocate and document their crimes you know, against themselves? One of the things we've done is really made a concerted effort to hire staff with disabilities or who have close relatives with disabilities. They make up now the majority of our staff, which is really exciting. It's important to have their voices on the team and influencing our work. And in all of the work we do, we always, and from the very start, have partnered with organizations of persons with disabilities. And so I think we'll continue to do that work, and that's been an important aspect of making sure that we are respectful of the principle of nothing about us without us. Mm -hmm. It goes without saying I mean, that, as I mentioned earlier, there's such a value in having people with disabilities input and consultation and meaningful engagement in the work that we do and the work that everyone does because they're, they're real experts on the abuses they experience and the solutions, the recommendations, the way forward. It's important, and that's something that we do, and I think is particularly important, is not only documenting what some of the problems are, but also presenting concrete recommendations. And in so many ways, people with disabilities themselves are helping us come up with those recommendations so that they're realistic from their perspective and are useful. They're also very much involved in advocacy that we do in all of our press conferences, we invite people with disabilities from our partner organizations or even sometimes people who may be interviewed who are victims of abuse who have disabilities. You know, they're also there in front of the video cameras and radio microphones and so on to, to help tell their story and help shift the minds and influence the government to change policies and laws. Yeah, I think it's very crucial, especially in third world countries where, you know, individuals with disabilities do have the lived experience and they present a very compelling case. And it is a dire issue, but the thing is they don't have the training to present it in a manner that could translate into laws and, you know, regulations. And so I think that's where the collaboration between able body and, and individuals with disabilities become really impactful. And so how do you measure success by the work that you do at the Disability Rights Division specifically? What tools do you use to measure incremental progress in the local country? Say, a country like, like the Central African Republic that you mentioned earlier. That's a, it's a really excellent question. I think that's important to always see how we have an impact I think in the case of Central African Republic, where we've documented the particular risks faced by people with disabilities in the armed conflict and the exclusion that they've experienced from humanitarian assistance, 
we've been able to really influence the UN uh, in terms of how it's begun now to include people with disabilities in the peace and security agenda, and also how humanitarian organizations have begun to think about how to make sure that their assistance reaches all people, including people with disabilities. In fact, last week, there was a UN Security Council meeting on people with disabilities in armed conflict that was held on December 3rd on the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. And that was, uh, in large part, a result of many of us pointing to and documenting the risks and isolation of people with disabilities in conflicts, including in Central African Republic. I think there's more and more attention paid, still not enough, and so we still have a lot of advocacy to do. Thank you for sharing that. So next, I want to address the pity towards individuals with disabilities. So I think this is a global uh, phenomenon, no matter where I've gone in the world. You know, there's this just different lens that people look at you, um, even with rebel soldiers that you've personally heard about in some countries where, you know, they see individuals with disabilities as less than humans, as animals. And sometimes because of this, their lives may or may not be spared. Why is there this automatic feeling of pity towards individuals with disabilities by able-bodied people, no matter where you are in the world? So based on research, what conclusions have you come to? I think it comes from shame associated with disability. I think it comes from fear that people have, someone who looks or speaks differently, and, and the sense that disability might be unknown or might not be well understood. I think it also comes from pity that you know, people with disabilities are often considered someone who's suffering. And so many people with disabilities around the world weren't suffering because of their physical or mental health condition. You know, the real suffering they experience is because of the exclusion, the isolation, the abuse that the rest of society is responsible for. And so I think there's a lot that we can all do in terms of changing the way we think about disability and the way we engage with someone with a disability. And instead of seeing them as the other or as less than human, but just to see them as anyone else, that would go a long way in people having their dignity and rights restored. That's a good point. So next we're going to shift to you know, another continent, to Australia. Uh, Human Rights uh, Watch reported that 50% of individuals in prison have a disability in Australia. So they're mostly Aboriginals or, correct me I'm, if I'm wrong, the Torres Strait Islanders people? Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. Why is there such a large percentage of people with disabilities there? Um, and why this specific group of population? Well, I think there's a strong correlation with people with disabilities in prison around the world. Um, and then in the case of Australia, have a strong connection to indigenous persons with disabilities overrepresented in the prison system. And it, it stems from a lot of reasons. Well, one reason is even poverty. And another is just the lack of support services available for people with disabilities in the community. There's a number of cases we document in Australia, as well as work we've done in the U.S. on this issue, that indicate that people with disabilities may not have understood the rules are in prison, especially people with psychosocial or intellectual disabilities, and therefore are prone to more violent reactions from staff in prison as a consequence of just not um, understanding exactly what behavior was expected of them and, and you know, it's a phenomenon that occurs. I think it's an invisible population. And in many countries, like in the U.S., prisons are used 
you know, as a warehouse or as an alternative because the mental health system is not working well. And so there's a quite a strong link between the disability population and the prison population. Let's move on to the issue of gender. I read a statistic that said that women with disabilities are three times more likely to be raped. And so I see that you are also a founding member of the International Network of Women with Disabilities. So why are women with disabilities more of a risk than men in the world in general? Well, we haven't done any comparative work about women and men, but we, we can definitely say that women with disabilities are at higher risk than other women in terms of violence, particularly sexual violence, just in terms of physical and communication barriers and attitudinal barriers as well. So, for example, we did work earlier this year. We launched a report on access to justice um, for victims with disabilities uh, of sexual violence. And this was done in India. And in that work, we found that women with disabilities face a number of barriers when trying to report rape to the police, when getting immediate uh, hospital care, and in going to the courts and in seeking compensation. It was quite clear from a number of the testimonies, both in that research, but also research that we've done back even in 2010 on women with disabilities and violence and discrimination they experience in, in northern Uganda, that when it comes to, to deaf women, they might not be able to shout out or they may not be able to communicate their consent or a sexual act or express very clearly that this is rape. For those women with physical disabilities, they may not be able to get away in cases of sexual assault. You know, we interviewed a one woman in India, for example, a woman with intellectual disability who was raped multiple times and never told anyone and was only found out that she was raped because she was pregnant. And when she was five months pregnant, they realized that uh, she had actually been raped by a, a young man in her community, in her village. And so there are a lot of ways that women with disabilities are more at risk. And I think it's also that they don't necessarily know what to do, that even sexual violence is a crime and that it's wrong. And so there's a lot of education that needs to be done and information that needs to get to women with disabilities on sexual violence and what to do. We put together some materials this year in easy-to-read formats formats that are designed for people with intellectual disabilities in particular. We did an animation with captioning in English and in Hindi so that we could communicate to people who are deaf, also to the blind, because there's voiceovers throughout the whole video and all the materials are available in formats that are accessible. So there's a lot of education that needs to be done and a lot of outreach to these communities to make sure that they understand what gender-based violence is and how to seek help if, if they are a victim of it. Thinking into the future now for progress, how can the U.S. play a leadership role? What can governments all around the world do to bridge the gap between the opportunities offered to able-bodied people and people with disabilities and answer this question in light of how the U.S. can really be a role model in this area? Well, there's some incredible advocates in the U.S., uh, including Marka Bristow, who's co-chair of our advisory committee and uh, leader within the disability movement in the United States since decades. People like Judy Human, uh, who have been a guiding force within the disability movement in the U.S. There needs to be more commitment. You know, the U.S. first and foremost hasn't ratified the U.N. Treaty on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and that's an important first step. The Obama administration signed the treaty, but there has been pushback on actually ratifying it and sending a signal that 
disability rights are important within the U.S. It's important to recognize that the U.N. Treaty was actually in large part built on the success of the Americans with Disabilities Act, and yet the U.S. hasn't been a leader from the government perspective in pushing for adoption of the U.N. Treaty. But there's a lot of work that has been done by national advocates, including trying to transfer the knowledge gained from the Americans with Disabilities Act to other countries and transfer the good experiences within the U.S. to places that have are still grappling with a lot of things like accessibility or inclusive education or access to various services that are available in the United States, albeit I think there's still a lot of barriers to these services as well. How have you learned to connect with local governments, local communities, individuals with disabilities in the local areas, bring about just tangible change, even though your work is at a global level, really? Well, our reporting and our research is very much at the national level, at the local level. And in all the work we do, as I mentioned, we always partner with local organizations. So we're on the ground. We're identifying people with disabilities who've been victims of abuse interviewing them to hear their story. This young man in Lebanon, for example, whom I met this year when we launched our report on access to education, I mean, he's one of those people that stays with you. He's eight years old and he uses a wheelchair. And, you know, school after school, he was denied admission simply because he uses a wheelchair. He told me how they said, yes, you're in a wheelchair, we won't take you. You know, he's the local spokesperson who has so much to share and he's his own local advocate together with his, his parents who have really fought for him to get a place in school. And they're the voices that we've tried to amplify in the multimedia that we've done and social media and our press work and in our reports. It's the testimonies of the people on the ground in these situations that are so important to convincing the policymakers at the grass tops to change the way laws are, to change the practices in their country. You mentioned earlier there's, on, there's only nine people in the Disability Rights Division. Are you looking to expand? Because it just is such a important issue and, you know, there's one billion people involved. Um, so nine people just doesn't seem enough. That's right. I think you're right. It's one billion people with disabilities around the world. We're a small team, comparatively speaking, of just nine people. Uh, a lot of the expansion depends on funding, of course, and for us, we try to see what issues we can have the most strategic impact, where we can add value to the disability movement's advocacy. And so with our little small but mighty team, we've tried to take on as much work as possible. And uh, it's been exciting to see how the work has grown, how our team has grown, and to see what we can do despite the fact that we're a small but dedicated group of individuals. Okay, last question. What is the key to working with global leaders and governments in advancing disability rights issues? I think the key to influencing policymakers is bringing the testimonies of people with disabilities from the ground to them. I think when you hear the story of Solomon, the man whom I met in Ghana, who's been chained to a tree for more than nine years under the beating sun, deprived of so much dignity and so many rights, Governments can't help but feel compelled to do something about it. And I think that that's one important area that we can influence governments is by sharing the testimonies and by bringing the voice of people with disabilities to the policymakers and influencing their decisions when they realize that it's not about numbers, it's actually about humans. 
and that there's faces and families and real people that are impacted by the policies and laws that are adopted. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Shanta, um, for giving us so much insight into the work that you've done uh, over the last decade. We appreciate you for giving us your time, um, even though you're clearly a very busy woman. <laughs> Thanks so much. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure to do this and uh, look forward to he- hearing all the great things that you will also be doing. Another Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Special thanks to our guest Shanta for joining us today despite a very hectic day for her. Special thank you also to my cousin Rachel Kennedy for editing this episode of our podcast. Look for us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook where I post pictures of my travels, share videos of my fitness journey, and keep you updated on the latest wheelchair accessory product line. Tell others about our program. The more we can raise awareness about these issues, the stronger we can get as a community. At Trips and Global on Wheels, we aim to build a global community of healthy, worldly, and informed individuals with disabilities and disability advocates. That means we want to hear from you, our listeners. Send us an email at tgowpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know about your favorite destinations for accessible travel. How do you stay fit to avoid chronic injuries? What language do you prefer to describe your identity as someone with a disability? We want to provide a platform for people to share and learn from each other. So send us your stories. If you have suggestions for future guests that you would like to hear on our podcast series, please leave them in the Contact Us section of our website or post them on our Facebook page. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.